Hello again, Ars Technica listeners. This is the third and final installment of my three-part conversation with longtime Wired Magazine editor-in-chief, present-day entrepreneur, and Washington, D.C. punk rock legend, Chris Anderson. I do hope you enjoy it. We start in mid-conversation here with Chris talking about an emerging field for commercial drones called reality capture. Reality capture. So, so um, I, you know, so right now I, I, I know that measuring the world's, you know, in abstract, good that you yeah. can manage it. I know there's a bunch of industries that could potentially be measured. You know, we talked about ag. It also includes things like insurance. There could be um, infrastructure inspection. There's also you know, search and rescue and fire and first responder. And there's also construction. And um, another industry I didn't know very much about it mm-hmm. at the time. Another biggie. Another biggie. Second biggest industry After in the world. Ag. And if yeah. you were just going to simply rank industries at construction, which is architecture, civil engineering, construction, it's the built world. Mm-hmm. That is the second largest industry in terms of dollars, second largest employer, mm. It's and, and growing very fast. Also not very digital. Mm. Um, probably one of the least digitized. Um, and unlike another big one like healthcare, where it's also not very digital, but is highly protected by laws and regulations. Intensely regulated. Yeah, construction's actually not that regulated. Mm. You know, that, that uh, they do feel the market forces and mm. they do feel the pain. But I didn't know that at the time. Um, what I did know is that um, a good friend of mine, a guy named Carl Bass, the uh, CEO of Autodesk at the time, who, you know, he and I nerded out. He's also a maker. He's got a fantastic workshop in Berkeley. He lives in Berkeley. We play tennis together. And mm-hmm. um, and we nerded out on things like CNC machines. And he's got, really, he's got the best of the best. Have you ever been to, like, any of the Autodesk um, Pier 9 or the yeah, gallery? Yeah. You've seen the cool stuff they have. So he had, yeah, he, had the coolest, he had the coolest stuff, and I got to hang out with, uh, you know, him. But the other thing Autodesk does is it's uh, their the market leader in construction. Um, so AutoCAD, for example. Yep. They have, like, 80% market share. And Carl and I were nerding out about the manufacturing side of Autodesk. And they also, by the way, have the Hollywood side, the Maya. So basically models. Yeah. This would be some models turn into buildings, some models turn into manufactured parts, and some models turn into Hollywood CG. Yeah. But they're all models. Yeah. Um, so uh, Carl and I you know, started by nerding out on the manufacturing side, but you know, but the, uh, you know, one of the three legs of that stool was, was construction. And, and I learned more and more about construction. Construction is a, is a world that begins digital on screen mm-hmm. with the CAD. And then the moment you dig a spade of dirt, it's analog. And you can't manage it with the same tools used to design it. I'm sorry. The moment you dig a spade of dirt, it's it's, it's analog. It's totally analog. It's analog. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. 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 It's yeah. paper blueprints. Yep. Yep. You know, guys with hard hats and vests. And so you can't manage it with the same tools used to design it. And so you know, Carl was talking about this you know digital analog digital conversion process by which it starts digital, then becomes analog once you dig, and then you had to redigitize it. So you could, so you could start, could you continue managing it with the same tools used to design it? You had a redigit. Now, how did the redigitization proceed? So you, you, nobody, well, they didn't, it didn't. I mean, that was the notion. The notion was you had to digitize the physical world, but how? Yeah. Yeah. And so in the early days, it was pretty, it was, everyone thought it was going to be laser scanners. You're Mm. just going to laser scan LIDAR with laser, laser scan in particular, but laser scanners, um, expensive, hard to use, you know, hard to care, you know, limited to the ground and indoors, et cetera. And so there's, a, so there's this broad theme of reality capture. Mm. So this notion of digitizing the physical world is what we call reality capture. Mm-hmm. So like, at a, like in Hollywood, you do motion capture, yeah. right? But, you know, for the physical world, it's called reality capture. There's three phases. At the beginning of a site, and now you're, you're, you're scanning the land, the slope, the soil, the, you know, the existing stuff that needs to be removed. It's called cut and fill, the holes, the sand, everything has to come in. Yeah. 
Then, um, so that's the, the site characterization. Yep. We call it a design surface and then an engineering surface. Um, and that's so you can actually, when you design something on screen, you're designing on something that's real. Mm-hmm. You know, the, that was scanned. It's, it's accurate. So precise knowledge of the topography Precisely. when you're starting. Yeah. Exactly. Um, then you start building. Yep. And now you're essentially either you're monitoring construction yep. and you're checking for deviations, mm. what's called clashes in the industry. So every day the, the plan said, trench goes here, pipe goes there, concrete goes there. And at the end of every day, you find out whether that was that happened or not. Mm. And if it didn't, that's a clash. And the details, so to my novice brain, the plans are the blueprint of the finished building. But what you're telling me is there are step one, step two, step three plans as well that say, dig trench number one, connect to hole A. All, you can imagine all the things that go wrong. Yeah, there, could yeah. be, there could be the simple thing like, hey, there's a big rock there. So I changed, I made a, an audible. I, yeah. I, I, I changed on the fly. That's one set of plans. Another one is, hey, I was supposed to you know, dig there, but oops. You know, I, I, it's off a little bit because yeah. I'm I was eyeballing off some some orange pole. Um, a next one could be, hey, you know, I was supposed to dig the trench today, but the trench guy didn't show up. Mm-hmm. So we're going to save that till tomorrow. Got it. So the trench at this moment ain't there. Ain't there. And nobody really knows this, but the people who are on the very, very front lines. And so wh- what is the notion then with, with the drone solution? Is you're taking a constant dynamic picture. Is it a daily dynamic picture? It should be. It should be. Um, I mean, that's the beauty, the beauty of, of zero mark marginal cost scanning. So robot robot scanning should have no marginal cost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is to say it just should, it's just electricity. It should just automatically go up and scan it every day and every hour, et cetera. Then you'd be able to, then you could monitor um, progress, like yep. what actu- where, what's the actual state. Yep. You can monitor clashes, what, what changed. And then you can make sure those clashes are embedded in this living document. Then you update the, do- the model. So yeah. some of those clashes are like, oopsie, let's go back and fix that. Some of those clashes are, oh, sequencing, let's change the orders for tomorrow. So the, the trench guy doesn't have to show up because the, you know, because the, the pipe guy, maybe I got it yeah, backwards, yeah. but the pipe guy doesn't have to show up yeah, to the trench right, guy. Yeah, yeah, show up. Yeah. Another one might be, hey, reasonable change made, but this is going to have consequences downstream for the guys who are going to come in the concrete, et cetera. Let's make sure that the model's accurate. Let's make sure we update the next several steps because this person faced with a difficult situation did the right thing, but we need to make sure that that is updated in the living document so that it's known forever that that wall was actually four feet away from where it was originally intended and everybody who's impacted by that will know when the time comes. Exactly. It happens so often that the trench guy, for reasonable reasons, dug a trench that uh, that has a a 45 degree bend Mm. and the pipe guy wasn't told and he brought straight pipe. Got it. So instead of having an idealized snapshot of the building before you start building it, which the blueprint might be, this is almost like having a live video feed of it. And it's a a living model. And that is what, that is essentially what your product is now. Well, it's a, we, we we contribute to that. So we, we do the, one of the inputs, the Mm -hmm. the, the capture that goes into the reality capture and this notion of a, it's called BIM building information modeling, Mm -hmm. this notion of a multidimensional. So we are just talking about spatial dimensions, but there's also things like time and cost dimensions and supply. Chain. So you are the sensors in the sky that are basically the live video camera on the construction site. Not video, which is, stills, actually. Yeah. Or, or what I mean, I'm using it euphemistically, but yeah. essentially the live image, live in quotes. You're the ones who are updating this visual. And so if you're short 20 tons of concrete, you'll know that. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, it's actually not, I mean, it is visual, but what we do is we turn those photos um, through a process called photogrammetry. You turn them into into 3D models Mm. and point clouds, et cetera. So it all looks like a CAD file when Mm. you're done. 
um, it, it's, it's a neat technique. Photogrammetry is basically when you take a, um, when you look at a feature from different angles that because of the parallax effects, so if I, yep. if I'm, if I'm shooting this, uh, coconut water from, you know, bottle from here and, and from one side into the other side, the same feature will have different foreground backgrounds because I moved the camera. Yeah. And when you just use the parallax effect, you can extract the geometries by just looking at the difference in foreground background. Mm. So photogrammetry turns visual images into polygons and, and point clouds. So the stills that you're able to take basically results in a 3D, a robust 3D model that a site manager, a project manager can look at and find out if this thing is actually on target or eight months late and 40% of her budget. Yeah, and there's a, there's yeah. a, there's a loads of different kinds of, you know, sometimes they want to see it in 2D, sometimes they want to see contours, sometimes they want to see elevation maps, sometimes yep. they want to see 3D models, sometimes it, there's a bunch of different things. But the point is, is that, is that just putting a camera in the sky can largely achieve all of those. Yeah. Now, one of the things that you had said is robotic sensors are free. At this point, isn't there a, an enormous amount of regulatory control over the drone market that basically says, even if it could be autonomous and robotic, it doesn't get to be because yeah. there has to be a human pilot. And not only does there have to be a human pilot, but they need to be in a line of sight. Mm. How is that impacting your and other industries right now? And does it feel to you as an intensely sophisticated observer of this industry, like an unbelievably archaic thing like pilot as performance art? Or is it something that's a really reasonable regulatory step to take, lest people have drones landing on their faces or something? Yeah, it's more the latter. More, uh, the, the, more, more, more the reasonable. Are. No, oh, no, yeah. more the reasonable. Yeah, okay, more, got more it. the reasonable. Okay. So a year ago, it was illegal to fly drones commercially. That's, I know, which is weirdly, fascinating. Yeah. Weirdly, you know, as a, a, a child can get a drone under the Christmas tree and fly anytime they want under what's called the recreational use exemption. Yeah. But if that, um, but if a, uh, a trained professional wanted to use that same drone to make money, to make money, that was at the time it required a pilot's license and an impossible uh, permissioning process. So a kid could launch a very powerful drone, a wedding photographer launching a less powerful drone would be in violation of the law. Correct. Got it. And that was only a year ago. That, that was, that was uh, until August of last year. What was the logic of that? Uh, you regulate who you can regulate. Got it. You can't regulate you, you kids. You can't send a C&D to a kid. Yeah, 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 yeah. They just... C and D cease and desist. The cease and desist. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You regulate the entities that have the legal require, requirement to obey regulation. And the point of that was, given that we presumably had lots of kids, un, unseeendable kids out there flying stuff. The point was they never anticipated that kids would be flying drones. Yeah. Right. Drones are military devices. It, it no. was. It was never considered. It was like it was a loophole. <laughs> Do you think that? The fact that there was a, I mean, so drones, you, you started DIY drones in 2007, yeah. lots of excited grownups doing stuff. Yeah. Now, if we go into the computing industry and say what was the equivalent of 2007, it would probably be Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak around what, 1976, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Uh, 10 years after that, well, it was nine years before they lift that commercial r restriction. So the equivalent of that would be 1985 in computing. By 1985, there was so much commercial computing going on in so many businesses, big and small, financial service industry, you know, hair salons and the whole nine. There was so much commercial activity. Do you think it's possible that the fact that 
the the government said for nine years in your industry, thou shalt not use this commercially. No. In some ways, stifled the industry in a way that made DJI's success inevitable hmm. because there was no economic activity was allowed in a domain that was very robust. That lots and lots of grownups, many of them no doubt entrepreneurial, were doing all kinds of cool things with with their soldering irons and your plans in 2007. Hmm. And it sounds like it was not until 2016 before somebody said you can use it as a wedding photographer. Counselor, you're leading the witness. Well, no, I uh, just, this you, is you, all would expect, this is, you would expect me to agree. No, I'm, you, no, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely I'm, asking. I don't. No, so yeah. I, it'd be very easy to blame the regulators. Actually, I think the regulators, um, have, you know, for a while they were like, you know, not moving at all. Yeah. Because we use this, I'm going to say loophole, but basically because the regulations had not anticipated DIY and yeah. drones going together, yeah, yeah. we put a million drones in the air in yeah. the hands of children and amateurs, et cetera. And those drones were not going back into the box. Right. So the regulators were forced to bring them into the fold. Mm-hmm. Um, they couldn't say no anymore. So yeah. they had to sort of say, well, yes, but. Yeah. And that yes, but included some, you know, taking away the requirement, for example, to have a pilot's license Yeah. Um, when you're flying commercially. And so now there's some, there's basically a driver's license. Um, it's called part 107. Yeah. And I think that was, um, yeah, that was faster than anybody had, well, than most people had expected. Yeah. So now, so, so, and that happened last year and you could argue, well, that should have happened 10 years earlier. But the reality is, is that, you know, if you ask why is the sky not dark with drones yeah. today, I don't think that regulation is the main answer. Mm. Um, I think the main answer is that the utility of these things is not well enough demonstrated. Mm. You know, if, we, if, if it was clear to everybody that a dollar invested in drones is $10 of return, mm. I think the sky would be dark. They'll or, find, they'd find a way. Or to, a buck 20. It doesn't have to be as extreme as that. You know, this is always the case. It was true with the early days of the internet. It was true, but, you know, computing before the spreadsheet. Yeah. Was a little bit of a of a gimmick. Yeah. So that year eighty five you described, that was that was I mean, when did Lotus when did whatever the first Visicalc. Come out? Visicalc? Visicalc would have been the first one. It was Apple. Well with Visicalc was Apple too. And a little bit earlier. But, sure, but but Vis- until Vis- you had a killer app. Sure, but 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 that killer app would would not have arisen if the Federal Communications Commission or somebody, the FDA equivalent, said, okay, we're a little bit sketchy about these computers because they've been used in a lot of James Bond movies and yeah. governments like to use them. Yeah. And and it, this is really the domain of the government and the military. So, okay, we can't stop these kids from using computers, but you know, you know commercial software, all right? And so ergo no VisiCalc in 1978. Well, remember the internet? Yeah. I mean, when was commercial use of the internet allowed? The very first, I don't know if it was ever disallowed, but the first ads were sold on the internet by GNN by Tim O'Reilly. Uh, no. Well, the first ads. Well, so he said yesterday. Well, ask Lewis and Jane. They'll claim the first ads were sold by Wired. Oh, um, no. They'll they'll claim, actually, uh, they'll claim the first banner ads, and they'll be right about Oh, that. oh, I see. Yeah, right. yeah. But the first advertising was GNN. Fair, fair uh, enough. Because Hot but, Wired was but, launched but, in But no, you're thinking about, about the web. But remember the internet, the notion of .com, the notion of commercial use yeah, of yeah. the internet. That was like to that was like um 95 yeah you like literally were not allowed i mean it was like like against the law to use the internet for commercial purposes before then yeah yeah would my life be easier if there were no regulations whatsoever on commercial use of drones um in a little bit yes yeah 
But remember, if you know what I call mass jackassery, um, <laughs> I'm kind of glad that people are thoughtful yeah. about the use of drones. I'm kind of glad that we're not causing public scares about privacy. Well, paparazzi and stuff like that. You know, yeah. I mean, we've seen what happens. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a drone just hit a Blackhawk yesterday. Oh, really? I, you know, the last thing we need right now is like this whole thing to get shut down because... A Hindenburg moment of some kind. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, that's so interesting. I, I, yeah. I can live... And, you know... I think we have so much work to be done on the return on investment is sort of the killer app side Yeah, that I don't feel particularly inhibited by the regulatory side. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, you you are one who um, in some ways has a fairly libertarian perspective mm-hmm. and you have a level of sophistication about this market that is m- at minimum two orders of magnitude beyond my own. So the, the fact that you are not feeling alarm or concern or dismay about this regulatory situation is frankly good enough for me because I I know how deep you are into this realm and I know that you're not instinctively a lover of regulation against non-regulation. And remember, it's a big world out there. And if yeah. I don't like the regulations here, I'll, there's there's Canada, there's Australia, there's yeah. drone delivery. The Amazon concept is not is not happening here for regulations, at least not now. But you go to Rwanda. Yeah. There it is. Uh, yeah, Zipline is an amazing uh, thing because basically what they've done is they've taken fixed-wing drones, which mm-hmm. are more efficient in terms of their energy usage rather than than quadcopters. Mm-hmm. And I guess they've started using drones to deliver blood to remote places, and they're going to be moving up to vaccines and other things that have are highly perishable and can't go on long journeys through forest roads. Mm-hmm. And and that is, I mean, what Zipline does in Rwanda, you're saying, really could not be done from a regulatory standpoint. It would not be permitted here in the United States right now. Let's talk briefly about the future, what drones are going to do and what they're not going to do. You know, people, you you mentioned the Amazon home delivery thing. You are a skeptic about that. Um, Yeah, I I, I am, but not because I don't have any any lack of confidence in Amazon. They, yeah. um, I just think that you combine, I mean, it's just a really hard technical and regulatory problem. That, that particular vision, by the way, you know, Amazon buying Whole Foods. Yeah. You know, warehouse to the roof of Whole Foods by a drone. Sign me up. Oh, yeah. Drone zones, you know, drop off zones. You know, I totally get that. Yep. Um, but Amazon, you'll still have to go to Whole Foods. Yeah, to pick go to Whole Foods. Up. You know, yeah. Amazon Whole Foods to, you know, my backyard with the dog and the kids and the clotheslines. You know, that's that's I, I just can't wrap my head around that. Yeah. And not even if they're lowering it on a cable from 200 feet or something. If you have to be a windless day or I don't know, maybe. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it can be done. Yeah. I, I know that. I just, you know, when I look at the economics, when I look at the other ways to deliver packages to my home, which yeah. seems to seem to work pretty well. The taco copter is not something you expect to be ubiquitous. I, I just yeah. I mean, and plus, you know, San Francisco banned pot delivery by by drone. So there goes your killer app. <laughs> there, there goes a killer app that was a very high high dollar value per if per ounce of of shipped product what about sort of the sidewalk drone things i mean i've been seeing cars pictures. well cars of course i want to talk about that in a second but um there was one uh, there there's one product out there and i've forgotten the name of the company behind it that sort of does that last mile thing yeah. by ambling down the sidewalk because self-driving cars are a regulatory issue maybe self-driving sure. i don't know little so i thought the R2 drones the drones you know with their with their noise were the most annoying thing you could have in the inv- in urban environment. But yeah. it turns out I was wrong. Ah, Sidewalk, sidewalk robots um, trigger, you know, even the most kind of, you know, capitalist 
libertarian folks gets all sort of, you know, class warfare when they see a robot trundling down to deliver somebody a burrito. Is they, that right? They there's, just there's, want to abuse those things. There, there's just... Well, oh, it's, it's our vandalism. sidewalk. Get oh, off va- my sidewalk. It's vandalism you're, you're, or, or just Well, I mean, it's just people, just pe- pe- people hate, you know, tech tech bros on sidewalks and even if they're robotic. Got it. Got it. Do you see anything? I mean, some of the most amazing demos that I've seen mm. of, uh, of drones recently, you know, in videos online and so forth are what swarms can do, um, particularly with what, what swarms can do with, you know, visual, you know, pyrotechnics. Yeah. Um, but just also what swarms can do in terms of just, you know, being self-organizing and, you know, accomplishing lots of teeny tiny tasks uh, as a group, do you see anything in the intermediate term using swarms of perhaps micro miniature drones to do yeah. things that one might not imagine a drone doing today? Uh, you know, this is where I'm going to lose all any friends I've made on this thing. Um, Uh-oh. Every grad student I've ever interviewed, you know, for a job here has always studied swarms. I've, with the exception of Intel's very pretty fireworks displays, I've yet to find an actual application. All right. Every grad student loves swarms because it's such a cool math problem. Mm. No actual problems I can think of, with possible exception of some crazy military thing I don't know anything about. Yeah. It's gotten to the point where, like, if, if someone actually has done swarming in their grad's re- research, we actually just, they get eliminated <laughs> on, on, this, on, the, on this year because, first of all, it's such a cliche yeah. at this point. Second of all, it's just, it's just you know, intellectual pursuits without any recognition of marketplace needs. Second of all, there really are no marketplace needs. I can't think of anything whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, you know, look, I, I can articulate the case for swarms as well as anybody. It's like, you know, parallel processing, distributed coordination, etc. I've yet to encounter a problem out there that actually suits a swarm. Apart from looking kind of cool. Well, the fireworks, oh, yeah, the fireworks yeah. are, fireworks are, 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 are kind of, aside from yeah. entertainment. Yeah, yeah. I cannot find, I mean, I've been at this a, a time and I've done my share of swarming and you on the roof out there, we've done our share of swarming. So technically done, yeah, achievable. Yeah. No one has ever asked me. No one, no customer has ever asked me for a swarm, or at least been willing to pay for one. Got it. Got it. And what about extreme miniaturization? I mean, another thing that that is always thrilling when one and then there was a TED talk not long ago of the, the hummingbird, which I'll say a hummingbird that sounds about as lo- loud as a tractor mower right. would. Do you know how many of those me, were made? Well, first of all, do you know how much they cost? And how much uh, were made? Well, because they're military, I'm sure that they would cost a staggering sum. But I think it was 1.5 million dollars for one. Yeah, but they and probably, I, they've never made another one. But they never will make another. They one. never. They never will because it sounds like a tractor mower. It's, it's it's like the most exquisite, beautifully designed Swiss watch. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, with miniaturization, um, you're up against physics. So, so physics just doesn't scale down. Once you get into little, small stuff, um, you know, the, the wind turbulence becomes a higher, you know, a bigger issue compared yeah. to the overall, you know, surface area of the, the, the surfaces. Yeah. Um, we have not figured out. So a bird can turn a worm into a day's worth of flight, mm-hmm. which is really more about digestion than anything else. Until we can figure out how to do that, we've got serious power problems. You know what that hummingbird's flight time was? No. I think it was 180 seconds. That's not long. No. Yeah, you can't get a whole lot done. And so are there new markets or new applications that you can imagine when the cost of a real multiplicity of sensors in the sky being de facto or or for all intents and purposes free, things that we couldn't really conceive of now that might come into sharper focus in the five yeah. time frame? Well, we're starting to see a little bit of a proxy for this with microsats or cubesats, mm-hmm. et cetera. So the companies like Planet Labs are now sending up these constellations of what they call doves. Yep. Um, so it used to be that satellites in space, uh, sorry, cameras in space were crazy expensive and only for the, the few. And now they're you know, getting cheap and for the many. 
Yeah, planets put up what a thousand satellites or something crazy. I, I mean, it's all you know. Well, remember these things uh, because they're in low Earth orbit, they fall out of orbit. Mm. So it's not like it's you know they say so you're kind of replenishing um, mm. constellations. But I can't remember what the, the, the replenishment cycle is. But let's imagine that there's. A you lot. Know, a lot. Yeah. And there's a lot more coming and, you know, between SpaceX, you know, getting them to space and the actual cost of them of the, you know, the, the, the satellites themselves, it's, it's approaching zero. Yep. But clouds, you know, the focal, you know, the optics and all that kind of stuff, you, you still don't have ubiquitous eyes in the sky. Yeah. 80% of the planet's covered by clouds. 80% at any given moment. At any given moment. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So you don't have ubiquitous eyes in the sky. Meanwhile, you have yeah. sensors on the ground. Yeah. Streets and cars and things like that, but also not ubiquitous coverage. Yeah, and so there's 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 clearly an opportunity for certain areas to get ubiquitous coverage below the clouds, but above the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the opportunity for drones. It's not everywhere. Yeah, I, I hope it's not over our cities. Yeah, that that would kind of be, be 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 creepy, but it could certainly be over security, over over campuses. Yeah, certainly over construction sites. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm haven't given up on ag. I personally, as a company, have given up on ag. But I, <laughs> as, as, a, as a person, I still think that someone's gonna that you know the notion of um of you know of, of drones over farms is going to be certainly more common than crop dusters over farms. Yeah, it just seems logical. I mean, why not? But, yeah. Well, I guess we just talk talk about why not. We talk but, about but why someday. Not. Yeah. 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 Well, you've been wildly generous with your time, Chris. Thank you. This is always fun. I appreciate it immensely. And uh, once we get off mic, uh, you will sign this album for I me. will, but what should I sign it? I don't know. That's your job. I, I'm handed books a lot now that I got a new book out, and I'm always stymied, but I always come up with something. We outlasted REM. <laughs> you did. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. So thank you for listening to my conversation with Chris Anderson. As you could probably tell, I had a huge amount of fun with it. My sole disappointment is that I was hoping for a bit more starry-eyed, speculative, wired-like prognostication about some way cool next-generation uses for drones when I brought up the subjects of drone swarms, ultra-miniaturization, and a couple other things toward the end. But one of the many things why Chris was a great editor of that magazine is that he is, at bottom, a realist. He only goes on those sorts of riffs, when he truly believes in them. And in this case, he knows the subject cold and just doesn't buy into the notion of taco copters delivering food to our backyards or thousands of micro drones living in hives. One thing that's evident from this interview is Chris's enormous generosity of spirit in talking about people who've really messed with his business. First, his Chinese competitor, DJI. As you heard, he's very impressed with that company and goes out of his way to praise them as an innovator and not just a copier as some might allege and basically says, they won fair and square. Very few other CEOs that I've known, probably as few as zero, would be this charitable about a competitor that waged a scorched earth campaign, which successfully terminated that CEO's principal line of business. But from all I've heard about DJI, Chris is not just generous, but correct in his assessment, as it is by all accounts, a truly amazing and innovative company. Where I diverge with Chris after listening to this interview three or four times after the fact is on his generosity toward the regulators who forbade the use of drones for commercial purposes for almost a decade in the U.S. Chris said that if you ask why the sky is not dark with drones, a great phrase by the way, regulation is not the main reason, but rather it's the lack of killer apps. And if you don't know that term, it originated in the PC era to describe applications that made PCs an essential item for significant markets of people and companies. In the interview, Chris and I specifically talked about the spreadsheet in this context. The thing is, markets generally don't produce killer apps when it's illegal to sell them. 
a great application of technology, whether it's a world-class spreadsheet or an automated drone-based crop dusting solution, takes teams of expensive people and significant time to build. And companies just won't invest the necessary capital if they know that once they're done, they could face a five-year wait for some bureaucrat to grant them permission to be in business. I conceded the point in my interview with Chris deferring to his immense expertise in this field. And it's a bit unfair for me to take that concession back now when I'm the only one holding a microphone here. But on reflection, I just can't ignore the circularity of commercial drones not becoming a big deal for a lack of great killer apps during a decade when the development of such applications would have been, for all intents and purposes, illegal. More than most fields, drones drew hordes of passionate makers and tinkerers. These people are often quite highly entrepreneurial by nature, and that vast, tightly coupled, and wildly enthusiastic community could have unleashed all kinds of early commercial products. And a few of them may have created entirely new markets that we can't imagine simply because they haven't been created yet. Those markets might have been vital lifelines of 3DR as the consumer market shriveled under DJI's attack, leaving only the commercial market. Now, we can't rerun history, so who knows? But this really seems like a case in which U.S. regulators strangled a market which was born largely of American innovation to the great benefit of China. Now, I don't fault Chris's judgment in this at all. And I'll again concede that he knows far more about this stuff than I do. But he's also in the top percentile when it comes to generosity of spirit, as I just mentioned. And that very admirable quality may be doing some of the talking here. And our technical listeners, this concludes the final installment of my interview with Chris Anderson. In case you're interested, the current episode of my podcast is an interview with Yale University primatologist and psychology professor Lori Santos. Lori has done amazing work on cognition in animals, including monkeys and dogs, and we talk about all of that. We then discuss the darndest thing which happened earlier this year. Sensing that there was something of a misery epidemic underway at Yale which, by the way, is something that's also quite well-documented on campuses throughout the U.S. as well, Lori decided to launch an experimental class on the science and practice of happiness. To her astonishment, it quickly became the most popular class in Yale's 317-year history. A quarter of the university took the 1.0 version of her class this past spring. We discuss all this, as well as neuroscientifically proven ways that you too could become a happier person in the podcast's current episode. You can find it by visiting my site at after-on.com or just type the words after on into your favorite podcast player or app and scroll through the episodes. There you'll also find lots of stuff about life sciences, above all genomics and synthetic biology, conversations about robotics, privacy and government hacking, cryptocurrency, astrophysics, astroarchaeology, and a whole lot more. Or you could just join me next week here on ours when we'll be serializing yet another episode 